You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, it's Wednesday. We've already screwed up. We've already disappointed everyone yeah. by uh, uh, failing to produce the podcast on Monday. Um, what do we have to say for ourselves, I guess, is, is the opening question. Oh, our, ourselves. What do we have to say for ourselves? Because we're both equally at fault here, right? Is that what you're saying? In a way, yes. <laughs> In a way, we're both equally at fault for your your shitty, cheap computer crapping out on us. Well, I mean, obviously, yes, I fucked us on Monday, but we were supposed to come in here and do this yesterday. I don't know what happened there. Because uh, <laughs> my schedule was cleared. We had, already, uh, we had already cleared it with our buddy Nate, who, for, before we go any further, we should say thanks to Nate for letting us come in and use sure. his uh, studio set up here today to record. But... Uh, yeah, what happened yesterday? We weren't, we didn't do to get this done yesterday. Look, let's. You know, oh yeah, no, we no, want to no, live no. in the past, huh? Uh-huh. Let's all just sit around and talk about all the yesterdays, all yeah. the missed opportunities. That's what I thought. Uh anyway, we're here today. It's we're gonna get this thing done. Although I, I I'm gonna say if uh, we manage to get this thing recorded and up on the internet, I, it'll be a goddamn miracle. Yeah, no, I, I assume that we will die here in this room trying to record this thing. As always, uh, this week's show comes in three rounds. In round number one, Ronda Rousey and Liz Carmouche appeared in the first episode of UFC Primetime last week, mostly to rave reviews. But what's in a 30-minute infomercial anyway? And in round number two, Hanan Barao is still a monster. A monster. And Michael McDonald is barely old enough to drink, but we still expect them to put on a crackerjack of a main event this weekend. And in round number three, Bellator's reality show is ready to rock and roll. So isn't it a little bit weird that we all assume that the people involved are torpedoing their own MMA careers? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, listener mail. Listener mail. Today, uh, Ben, you're going to read the listener That's mail right. questions because right, you have a computer that works. Yeah. And, and I do not. Now that I have this power, I intend to lord it over you. There's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. All right, well, I'm, enjoy these few days. I'm going to read whatever listener mail questions I want. I want to hear a goddamn thing about it from you. And I'm, I get to massacre some people's names this time. Yeah, go for it, so man. take that. Our first question comes to us from Dan. I feel pretty confident oh. on my pronunciation of that Yeah, one. well, I guess I know what your uh, number one decider is for which, <laughs> which listener mail questions you're going to read. Dan asked, seriously, guys, I want to know what you think about Dan Mirigliata. In my opinion, he's overtaken Maz, I assume we're referring to Steve Mazzagatti, as the worst referee in MMA. It's not even close at this point. Whereas Mazzagatti's fuck-ups come in a variety of flavors, sometimes he stops it too early, sometimes too late, sometimes he even disqualifies you for breaking a deaf guy's collarbone, Big Dan's fuck-ups, on the other hand, come in only one flavor, plain old vanilla brain damage. He consistently lets guys take half a dozen or more unnecessary blows to the head, Personally, I think this happens because he has the wrong idea of what his job is. His job as ref is ensure the fighters are safe. But to me, it seems he thinks it's more important to, quote, get the call right than to protect the fighter from unnecessary harm. What do you think is the reason he has so many late stoppages? Well, that's a good email from, from Dan, yeah. who sent that. Uh, I also like the leading nature of the question. <laughs> Well, we were in a court of law. I think someone would would object there. It's pretty clear at this point. If you want to get your question on the co-main event podcast, either present a kind of a crazy thesis disguised as a question or just rant and say, what's up with that at the end of your question? Right. And, you know, we've been over this before. I'm not 100 uh, percent into uh, trashing on MMA referees just because I feel like that's something everyone does. And I feel like they have one of the hardest jobs in sports. It's you know, one of the only refereeing jobs where at any time during the athletic contest, you can be called upon to make a split second judgment call that thereby ends the entire game, (laughs) so to speak. It'd be like if at some point during a baseball game and you didn't know exactly when, but you were going to have to make a snap call at second base and then the game was just going to be over. Third inning, boom, let's all go home. And then you can't take it back. So I feel like they have a really hard job. Um, Maybe Dan Mergliata is a little bit late on some stoppages, <laughs> and I don't know why that is exactly. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't 
really see the point in engaging in, in lengthy conversations about which ref is the worst ref this week, because next week it's going to be a different ref. Right. You know, the thing to me that I think is, is alluded to in this is, is it that he has a weird concept of what his job is? Uh, because I noticed, I, I believe he, I can't remember exactly what fight it was on the last Bellator uh, event last week where he had another late stoppage and people were on Twitter being like, damn it, Mirigliata, what are you, what are you doing to these people? Why didn't you stop that one sooner? And I can't remember who it was, but some fighter on Twitter piped up and was like, hey, as a fighter, that's the kind of ref I want in there is the guy who's going to give me a chance uh, to get back in it. Uh, I think actually it was uh, Eddie Alvarez, maybe, now that I'm thinking about it. Right. Um, but like, again, that again leads to the point that there's a lot of, of talk in this sport about what the referee's job should be. And a lot of it, as we talk about it occasionally on this podcast, has, has to do with how to enforce the rules. Right. And at the end of the day, as it concerns the possible comment by Eddie Alvarez, allegedly by Eddie Alvarez. Or I could be just making it up. Uh, like, do you, is what we're looking for in a ref a ref that fighters like? Or are we looking for a ref that can be decisive and make the right call? Well, we also, though, it seems we have different expectations of like, what a ref will allow you to go through in like, a title fight, for instance. Like I, when uh, people were wondering whether that Junior Dos Santos Cain Velasquez fight should have been stopped, uh, I heard a lot of people saying, "Well, hey man, it was a heavyweight title fight. You got to give him every opportunity in a in a title fight." Which I don't know if if what we're worried about is your brain health. That should not change from a title fight to you know a prelim on Facebook. Uh, it's also I remember reading uh, at least Norman Mailer's account of the death of the the boxer uh, Benny the Kid Perret. Uh, who Emil Griffith beat to death in the ring. And he at least attributed it to, in part, that Perret had a reputation as a dude who took some hellacious beatings and still hung in there and still came back. And therefore, by that point in his career, the refs were like, well, yeah, he's going to get beat up some. So we, gotta, we give him a little more time than we give other people, uh, which then ended up fucking around and getting him killed. So yeah. maybe something we want to pay attention to in MMA. Yeah. And for my money, we just should do whatever we can to take these sort of like subjective decisions on the part of the referee out of their hands, you know, take that power away from them. Clearly, they're always going to have the, the, the power to, to stop a fight and to do the things they need to do in the cage. But a lot of times as we talk about it, like, you know, the way that they enforce most rules is surprisingly subjective at this point. You know, it's, it seems like a lot of the times the refs don't even know the rules in terms of like how to handle an eye poke as how to handle. A, a groin strike and the rules differ in different states. So I think like to me, a more constructive conversation instead of just talking about which ref sucks the worst this week is, Hey man, let's make the rules of this sport better and let's get together with athletic commissions to try to standardize things from place to place so that there's not all these questions and we don't have these problems in the future. All right. Well, Moving on, our next question, and since I'm in control of listener mail, I'm going to make this a two-part question from Whoa. two different All right. listeners. Well, this is unorthodox. Yeah. Well, Everything about this podcast today is unorthodox. Yeah. Fucking deal with it, Dundas. Uh, we got, as you might imagine, a lot of questions about testosterone and Vitor Belfort's use of it. Uh, so this hits us on two different levels here. First, from Mike, who writes... Wait, Mike? <laughs> come yes. on man yes. mike writes let's talk about testosterone as okay big, mike as big as this issue has become i've never understood why it isn't bigger that's in all caps if average man produces testosterone at a te that's testosterone to epitestosterone uh for those uninitiated a te ratio of one to one maybe two to one for top athletes but the Nevada State Athletic Commission allows a ratio of up to 6 to 1, and most other agencies allow up to 4 to 1. Doesn't this mean that someone with a TUE for testosterone can have levels of up to 6 to 1 coming into a fight? In other words, is it possible that Vitor's test ratio was as much as 6 times higher than Bisping's for the fight? Now, before we answer that, part 2 of the question from Justin Gill, who writes, Justin Gill. Upon hearing You're the changing shock- these names over there, aren't you? Upon hearing the shocking news that Belfort was using TRT, a puzzling question came to mind. If Belfort does all things through Christ, does Christ approve of the use of TRT? Would he still stick that needle in his ass if Christ was there? The young dinosaur talks relentlessly about doing the right thing and being a good man. Does this newfound information tarnish his reputation and label him a hypocrite? So first, 
I've already forgotten what part one was. What was part one? About the ratios. Which so, is yeah, no, point. okay, right, yeah. Legally, unless I'm mistaken, a dude absolutely could roll into a fight with a testosterone yes. six times higher than that of uh, who I believe Mike referred to as average man. Average man. Average man. Average man, Mike. And, yeah, Michael and, and it would be, he would be totally in the, in the right, right? He would be totally clear, good to go. Even the, I mean, and Nevada takes a lot of crap for allowing six to one when most other agencies, as the listener points out, uh, only allow four to one. But even if you're allowing four to one, if you're four times higher, and that, see, this is the thing that always gets me when people defending TRT are like, well, hey, man, they're just bringing their levels up to normal. What's wrong with that? They're just bringing, as if there's some like normal, like just one set point that everybody else is at. You know, like everybody else is at a five on the scale and Vitor's down there at a one. Well, we're just bringing them up to five. That's fine. Like, no, normal is such a wide range. You're basically, all these guys are going to try and get to the highest possible end of normal. Right. Uh, As well they should. <laughs> whatever is allowed by the rules. Yeah. Well, see, whatever's allowed by the rules. <laughs> all right. So then I think that leads us into part two of the question. Belfort, as we know, very, very religious, very into Jesus, uh, as he calls him. Uh, if you're sticking a needle in your ass to raise your testosterone levels, are you basically slapping Jesus in the face and telling him the testosterone that he gave you is not enough, damn it? Right. I saw someone on Twitter this week. I can't remember who it was, but I, they, I thought it was kind of a funny line. They said, if God doesn't make mistakes, which I think was a, a takeoff of something Ray Lewis said leading up to the Super Bowl then maybe you should take your low testosterone level as a, as a sign, you know? Yeah. I just, and, and I, you know, it's, it seems like, I know that this is going to blow your mind, Ben, <laughs> but it seems like some of these really religious guys pick and choose a little bit where they're going to apply their inflexible morality. How so, Chad? Well, I mean, I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think a guy like maybe Vitor Belfort, who, who probably goes to church, seven, eight days a week, uh, maybe has a tendency to either justify it to himself or look the other way when he takes the needle full of bull testosterone or whatever we're using at this point and, and plunges it deep into one of his own buttocks. <laughs> okay. I, I, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Or I maybe he just thinks God invented testosterone replacement go. therapy. That's, that's and, where and, I was going to go next. That's fine. Is, yeah. It's like, you know. If God also invented that weird cooling glove that you can wear to bring your, your, your core temperature down after exercise, then, hey, you're just taking advantage of all the stuff that God has put into your life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Tell yeah. My, that, myself that every time I go to the strip club. Yeah. You know what I mean? God, God, God made the strip club. There on the stage. Yeah. God invented jigglers. Yeah. And that's why I'm here. God made this big pile of cocaine on the table in front of us. <laughs> Damn it. We're going to stay here all night until we get through it. All right. Our last listener mail question oh, please comes let from it be Jared hard to McKenzie. pronounce. Oh, Jesus Christ. Why the hell can't it be a one strike you're out rule for steroid cheats? It's not too harsh. Breaking people's brains on drostanolol is and test is too harsh. Fuck a steroid cheat. Go work at a bank. No, I like that. Yeah. Good. That's, that's come strong yeah. from Jared McKenzie. I'll there. be honest. It's the that last line, fuck a steroid cheat, go work at a bank. They that's got what, him onto the that's podcast. That's what sold you, yeah. wasn't it? Uh, that and his really, really easy to pronounce <laughs> name. Uh, yeah, man, I, I agree with that from Jared McKenzie. I think that in a perfect world, a one strike or no tolerance policy for a steroid cheat would be awesome because then if a dude tested positive, we would just wouldn't even have to deal with him anymore. And it would probably turn out to be a good situation for everyone, including the promoter that wouldn't have to deal with the possible negative consequences of say having a heavyweight champion that everyone thinks is on steroids potentially. Would you not worry about the danger of a false positive, even though I don't know everybody claims false positive when they get caught, but it's got to happen to somebody somewhere along the line, right? Like, and that boom, they just banned from the sport. Yeah, I suppose that's a good point. Although False positive? I mean, come on. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, that, and that actually is a good point. Although the more, I think that the, the more realistic harmful side effect would be that you just wouldn't have any fighters left at the end of banning everyone for their, for their number one offense. I mean, offense. or I, I think the, if you made the penalty that extreme and that harsh, then 
you would get to the point eventually where people would just be like, it's in no way worth the risk to do this. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about it a few weeks ago that, that I was just kind of thinking out loud when I said it, but as a first, uh, a first offense of, of performance enhancing drugs, maybe you lose your entire purse. You know, to me, that sounds like at least an effective deterrent because that's hitting these guys where they live. Like, yeah. That's why they're here. That's what they're doing. Cash rules everything around us in this professional sports environment. And if you get caught and you're going to lose your entire purse, then that to me starts to be the, the situation where maybe it's not worth it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Is that it? Are we done? You don't have a Bob Smith or a Joe Johnson hanging around over there for the listener mail question you want to pick out for us to read? Let me check. No. All right. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week, I guess. If you have a question, comment, concern, a really easy name for Ben Folks to pronounce, you can get in touch with us by going to the website, comaineventpodcast.com, and click the link at the top right-hand corner of the page that says email the podcast and that will get it done as for right now we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one well ben the second episode of ufc primetime rousey versus carmouche will air Thursday night this week. The reviews of the first episode uh, have been overwhelmingly positive. In fact, people, I think, are saying that it is one of the most uh, well-received shows ever produced by the UFC. Um, And by and large, I thought it was pretty good, and I think that it would behoove us to discuss why it was good and who it was good for in a minute. But first, I think we would be doing everyone a disservice a little bit not to discuss exactly what it is that we're watching when we sit down to to watch a UFC primetime show um you know because essentially what we're watching are promotional tools here these these are shows that are produced by the UFC and while they are always very slickly done and very aesthetically pre- pleasing um you know, uh, they're essentially 30-minute commercials. Yes. Everyone in them... Well, like 21 minutes. Twenty. Yeah, that's right. 21-minute commercials without the commercials. Yeah. Uh, everyone in them comes off exactly as the producers of the show want them to, 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 to come off as. And so I feel like to come out of this show and be... To essentially say, wow, I really thought Ronda Rousey came off as a star, to me is the same as like watching a 30-minute craft macaroni and cheese ad and then at the end being like wow that the craft cheese and macaroni looked really tasty during during the commercial <laughs> but and, then you know you could watch a com- there's a there's a difference between good and bad commercials sure and, and yeah so and the these here. and these are good commercials i just think that the thing that bothers me is when we start to act like the this is the de- definitive statement about a certain fight or a certain fighter and I think it means that we're sort of allowing the promotion itself, the, in other words, the person that's trying to sell us something, we're allowing them to shape how it's perceived moving forward. And that troubles me a little bit. Does that trouble you? It would trouble me if we were allowing them to exclusively shape it. Right. I mean, we all kind of get a say in who these people are, what we think of them, and what this fight means. Uh, and the UFC gets its say, too. And especially the UFC's say is going to be, here are the reasons you should buy this. Um, whereas our take on it is going to be a little differently. It doesn't bother me that much to, to tune in and see it and say, I mean, as long as I don't feel like it's dishonest, uh, which I don't, and it is, you know, enjoyable to watch if I'm watching to be entertained or to be informed, you know, I'm getting more entertainment than information, but, uh, I, I still feel like, Hey, you're sitting around watching a, a 30 minute infomercial as long as you realize what it is. That's okay. As long as I realize that the Kraft macaroni and cheese is not going to look like that when I get it home, that's fine. (laughs) The Easy Mac, you just throw it in the microwave for 30 seconds or whatever. Steam just gently wafting off of it. But it it seems to me, just to take this a step further, that the, the, the current trend in the industry is for the UFC, which already exerts a great deal of centralized control over the MMA market in general. The growing trend, I think, is for the UFC to usurp more and more 
of a role that would be traditionally filled by the media. I mean, we see that with uh, UFC Tonight. There's the yeah. UFC Magazine. And, and these UFC primetime shows are, are part of that. And I feel like the fact that they are, you know, so well done in terms of like a video production standpoint, we have a tendency to, uh, you know, put, put more credence behind them or, or make them into a bigger deal than they ought to be. Because, you know, it's not like we're watching 60 Minutes here, right? True. We're not watching an independently produced documentary piece about these two fighters. Like, uh, you get out of the first episode of UFC primetime, probably like what 15 minutes about Ronda Rousey and, and maybe six minutes about Liz Carmouche and her opponent. <laughs> right. Liz Carmouche. <laughs> Liz Carmouche might as well for those primetime shows be the old WWF wrestler who's standing there in plain trunks, no entrance music already standing there, you know, using her own name. Just, Hey, here I am. Yeah. I'm um, going to get killed by Mr. Perfect now. And I, and I think that, that, we should talk a little bit about who came off better on the show, because I think it's more interesting than maybe the UFC believed it would be when they produced it. But to start, I mean, I think we've probably talked about this before, but, but obviously the thing that the UFC is doing with Ronda Rousey is a significant departure from what we've seen in terms of their fight promotion from the UFC before, because even though our fears maybe were a little alleviated earlier this week by the signing of, uh, Misha Tate against uh, Kat Zingano. Kat Zingano. Uh, it still feels like this women's division is Ronda Rousey and everybody else. Yeah. And the UFC. She's, a, she's like a Diaz brother in a beautiful fucking body, Chad. Gross. Beautiful fucking body. Just <laughs> Diaz brother. And, and the, the thing that's a little bit strange about it is that the UFC has been fairly upfront about the fact that, hey, man, we're just trying this out. We really like Ronda a lot. We think she can be a huge star. So we're just going to have a few fights and see how she goes, right? <laughs> yeah. Which seems like the kind of thing that has historically gotten other fight promotions in big trouble, right? When uh, Elite XC tried to do their whole fight promotion essentially about Kimbo Slice, and then Kimbo gets knocked out by Seth Petrozelli. That turned out to be bad. And when uh, Strike Force tr- had to pay a bunch of money to bring Fedor in, and then Fedor got beat by everyone that they had on the roster, that turned out to be bad. And it's not that the UFC is going to fall apart because of this yeah. or anything like that. That's that's not going to happen. But like, it's some cause for concern. I think about the future of women's MMA because who's to say if Ronda Rousey loses this fight or loses her next fight, the UFC is not just going to be like, eh, you know what, this isn't really working out. Yeah. Well, you know. The thing I was thinking as you were bringing up those examples is it seems like the UFC, at least Dana White, is being more honest about uh, his take on Ronda Rousey and the whole women's MMA thing in general than either of those promotions were about Kimbo Slice sure. and, yeah, absolutely. and or Fedor or, or Gina Carano when they were promoting her. You know, I don't recall anyone being like, oh, yeah, no, we are totally all about this one person. That's the reason we're interested um, is because this person is a star. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we need some other people, too. I don't, I guess the question is, would you rather that they lied to us about it? No, I guess not. I mean, my, my, I guess the issue that I take with it is not whether or not they're being honest about it, but that they're just even doing it. Because I feel like in the past, we've been able to sort of like shortchange people like Elite XC or Strike Force at the time by being like, well, that's Bush League. The UFC would never do that. Yeah. And, and now they're totally doing it with Ronda Rousey. And it just seems like anytime you base that, you put that much capital behind someone who in the sport of mixed martial arts could always lose at any time. It just seems to me like kind of an ill-fated decision and almost like, cause you know how this goes, man. Are you almost saying they're begging like for it? You're, Is that what yes, you're saying? Exactly. I wasn't going to say it in those words, but they are begging for it. It's like you're tempting the MMA gods who have always been cruel mistresses. Yeah, we just know that ready to smite they a are, motherfucker. They are. They want you to get within reach of the brass ring and then they're just going to fucking pull it out from under you, man. That's what they do. But see, that's why I, I will be really interested to see what happens if Ronda Rousey gets beat either by Liz Carmouche or by somebody else. Right. That's going to be the test for the UFC. I think that's going to be genuinely interesting when that happens. Uh, you know, and if it, they do it long enough, eventually it's going to happen. You right. Know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would be really interested. But they're at least adding more fighters now. Like you said, Misha Tate and Kat Zingano, uh, Sarah McMahon, uh, I believe Alexis Davis also signed. So there's, they're putting some, some resources into this. It's yeah. encouraging. I guess what I wonder is if, 
you know, if we get started down this women's MMA path, whether or not Ronda Rousey stays a champion for a long time, if if we're sitting here five years from now and there is a legit women's division uh, going on in the UFC and it's working out, will it matter if they got into it for the right reasons or not? No, it won't. And I think that's best case scenario, right? We we that's the thing we all hope for is that you know four or five years down the road we've got a thriving women's division multiple divisions i would say because it would be nice if the women at other weights had a chance as well uh to come in and apply their trade i think that that is what we all want to see happen out of this and that's one of the things that i think is troubling by the fact that that it seems to be all about ronda rousey and nobody else because god forbid she lose and then that sunny happy future is put in jeopardy but so here's the thing that i want to talk to you about concerning specifically this episode of primetime, the first one, because we haven't seen the second one yet. It airs this week. It felt to me while watching it, like all stops were being pulled out to make Ronda Rousey seem a likable and B marketable. So my question to you is, do you think she is? Do you think she's likable? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think she's likable. Uh, I think one of the things I was Noticing while watching it, when they'd be kind of going back and forth, you know, they do, here's a little segment on Carmouche, here's a segment on Rousey. And every time Liz Carmouche would have a, a pretty good segment, and then one where she talks about, you know, realizing she was a lesbian, and then, you know, being in the military, and that kind of stuff, and you're like, oh yeah, man, that's kind of some, some touching stuff. And then they go to Ronda Rousey, who tells this tearjerker of a story about her dad. And you're like, one of the worst stories I've ever heard, <laughs> by the way. And you're just like, if you're Liz Carmouche and you're sitting home watching that, and you're just like, God damn it. Just one-upped me. Just as soon, you know, I get a little like emotional opening up moment, and then she comes in with one that's like five times more emotional, and just boom. You, you just, you can't win. You can't win with the, the superstar uh, status of Ronda Rousey. But here's the thing that I thought, and, and I would agree with you. I thought that Ronda Rousey's far and away her most likable and, and I guess marketable, although that it feels slimy to call it that. But her most likable moment on that show was, was not necessarily when she was talking about her dad, which is an awful, horrible st- story that uh, will just tear your heart right out, frankly. Yeah. But when she was talking about how she doesn't like to talk about yes. her dad because it feels exploitive, which it is. Yes. And so to view it in the context of this show that's being produced only so that we will want to watch her fight and so that we will like her. And she's talking about how she doesn't like to talk to the media about her dad because it feels exploitive. And we just see it as a good story, which we are totally guilty of doing that a lot of the time. And yet she's talking about it and she's talking about it in the context of this show that is produced solely to make her look good. To me, that just smacked of like, oh, wow. Like they are, they're doing everything they possibly can to get her over right now. And so to me, it was like, I don't know, man. It was almost like it worked so well it didn't work or something. It was like, well, I know what you're doing right now. No, like I was not able to suspend my disbelief at that point. Like I, it was like I was looking behind the curtain and being like, okay. Now, I know why you're doing this, and I know what the point is. <laughs> you know, to me, the first thing I thought of was when uh, Brian Stan was talking to me once about how everybody kept wanting him to tell this story about this huge firefight on this bridge in Iraq. Uh, and people knew the story. You know, either they knew of it or they knew exactly the story, had read it in other interviews or heard him tell it before. And then when they had their interview with him, were like, Okay, tell us the bridge story. Tell us, the sh- tell us about that firefight story. They're asking because they know. You know, they just want you to tell it again for them. Like, so that, okay, now I can have my copy of it to use for my interview or my story or something. Uh, and he was like, you know, just, I just feel like I'm done. I, I've told it too many times. I don't, it's kind of a horrible moment in my life. I don't really want to relive it. So I'm just done doing it. I'm just not going to, next time somebody asks, I'm just telling them no. I, I'm not going to do it anymore. Uh, which I get, I mean, you got to sympathize with them in that situation. And even if you're saying, okay, Ronda Rousey was using that, like, or the, the primetime producers are using that to, to make us feel for Ronda Rousey. I still buy that for her personally, 
that seemed like maybe, hey, if I tell this on TV in front of a big enough audience, then I won't have to tell it anymore. Sure. Especially yeah, if maybe I that was end the, case. the telling of it with why I'm not going to tell it anymore. Then what kind of an asshole would you have to be to go in a Ronda Rousey right. interview no. and ask her Good at this point. point? Good point. Yeah, and I don't and, – and obviously, like, her – she was not being disingenuous in any way during no. that discussion. Like, that was the real deal, and, and it was very affecting, and it, and it, it, it did uh, – was her best moment. Like I said, but the reason that I bring it up is that I felt like for the previous 19 minutes of that UFC primetime, that Liz Carmouche was obviously the more likable of those two fighters. And I don't know if I was the only one who came away feeling that way, just because I felt like Liz Carmouche was obviously more articulate, obviously uh, probably a better spokesperson for the sport. And w- once you, you add in the fact that she is the first openly gay fighter, on the UFC roster, not to mention the first openly gay person to fight in a main event, not to mention potentially the first openly gay we champion. Get we get it. Like to me, that's a bigger deal than, than anything that, that, that we're being, uh, that any of the, the stuff we're being told about Ronda Rousey. I think that it's a, it's a, an enormous deal to have women in the octagon. And I think whoever's the first female champion of the UFC is, Obviously a big deal, but to me, just because the sport has such a reprehensible uh, past with, with uh, you know, relating to homosexuality, uh, to me, almost having a, a, an openly gay fighter is almost a bigger deal. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's obviously different to have right. an openly lesbian fighter than it would sure. be to have an openly gay male fighter. Yeah. I think the sport, it's not that big a deal to a lot of the, the same people who our MMA fans and who uh, might be homophobic toward men don't really care that much or don't get fired up that much about lesbians. They just don't. Uh, so, but I mean, I see what you're saying. It, it is still a big deal. Uh, I, I, but I don't know. I mean, I wonder if you didn't, if you, if this was your only exposure to Ronda Rousey, if you didn't know about her tweeting about how you should really watch this fascinating video about how the Sandy Hook shooting was all a hoax. Right. Um, if you didn't know, so that's, if that was just your first exposure to, you'd never heard of either one of these two before, and you watched it, uh, I think Ronda Rousey still comes off looking like she has that kind of just extra it factor that Liz Carmouche doesn't quite have. And I'm not just talking about being a Diaz brother and a beautiful fucking body. No, that's still gross. Whenever you say it. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, let's uh, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll we'll get out of here for this round. And I think that this week. In light of recent events, it's a slam dunk. we have to do something a little bit unorthodox with Are You Fucking Kidding yeah. Me? And that is that we're going to have a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And that's because there's one entity out there in the world this week who's begging for it more than normal. You know who you are. You know who you are, International Olympic Committee. That's right. You are going to take wrestling. The, the, ori- the original Olympic sport. <laughs> the original Olympic sport, the oldest sport in the world, and take it out of the Olympics? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? You know how, what kind of stupid ass sports are in the Olympics? Motherfuckers walking around with dressage horses and Dancing shit. Dancing horses. Dancing fucking horses. Motherfuckers playing ping pong. Trampoline, right? Isn't trampoline a sport? They're doing trampoline shit in the Olympics. Two people engaged in unarmed combat, just like the Greeks did, except with slightly more clothes on. You're going to take that shit out of the Olympics? You fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? It's it's unthinkable, really. I, I mean, don't think it's going to happen. I don't yeah, think Yeah, they think they're going to get it back in there. The shitstorm has been so vast and immediate. I just don't see the reasoning why they would have to take it out. Like No. It's not like that there's a cap on the number of Olympic sports you could have, right? Yeah. They want to add golf. Add golf, motherfucker. What's to stop you from just moving uh, wrestling to the Winter Olympics? You yeah. do it inside. It's not like it costs a lot. All you need is a mattress and two guys <laughs> who are willing to, to fight, you know? You can do it in a dorm hallway. You, that you, could, you could literally hold the Olympic wrestling finals in a dorm room hallway, and it'd be fine. We've all been there. Oh, we've all been there. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, this weekend in London, England, Henan Barrow. Who we are told well, he's a monster. is a monster. 
will be defending his UFC interim bantamweight title against Michael McDonald. Now, it's been about 16 months that Dominic Cruz has been out. This interim bantamweight title is starting to seem like basically the bantamweight title for now. I don't know. How fired up do you get about an interim title fight? Well, a, a little, well, more fired up than I would be if it was a, a different matchup. I feel fired up because I think it's a rad fight, not necessarily fired up because it is the interim 135 pound championship. Although the booking of this fight and its placement as the main event on this UFC on Fuel card really reinforces to you why they wanted to add these additional weight classes and why they're helpful for the UFC because this is sort of the perfect fight to make the main event of a UFC on Fuel card where. You don't really know how many people are going to watch and, you know, the card itself is really going to probably do a lot to, to suck in hardcore fans because I think that there's a lot of guys on this card who uh, are, guys, are guys that have potential that we want to see more of, but at the same time, it's not going to really draw probably very many casual viewers. So having an interim bantamweight title fight is perfect in that, yeah, you can put a picture of a belt on the TV advertisements for this fucker. And that's going to make people watch. But at the same time, it's not one of those more high-profile championships like, say, oh, I don't know, heavyweight title that you would want to put on a pay-per-view. So to You're me, saying, it's, screw it, why not? Yeah, to me, it's the perfect Fuel TV main event, interim bantamweight title between two fairly young guys who are both murderers. Yeah. And that's what's most interesting about it. Before we, before we start talking about it, though, when we move on, you, tell, you brought up Dominic Cruz, and I feel like, Man, kind of a shame, and it's almost unfair to say this about him because he's really only had a couple of injuries. He's had the hand thing and now the the ACL. Uh, but god damn it, it's starting to feel like he's just perennially injured, right? Yeah, you got to feel bad for him, man, because you know at this point, say Henan Brown uh, defends the the interim title successfully, he will have as many interim bantamweight title fights in the UFC as Dominic Cruz has had real ones. Yeah. You know, and especially with Dominic Cruz where you look at him and you see so much, he has so much talent. He's so fun to watch. Uh, Man, if he could just be healthy, he might be a star by now. Yeah. And uh, Hey, the thing that happened to him recently where his body rejected the cadaver ACL. That's that's a bummer when that happens. That they put in there. It is a bummer, bummer. but I'm going to say, your body's totally in the right to do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say perfectly understandable for your body to be like, you did what? Wait, you took up. a dead guy's knee hold and up. sewed it onto my knee? Our knee? <laughs> I just got to ask one thing. Where did you get this new <laughs> ligament? I, you didn't get it from a dead guy, did you? Oh, no. No, we're not doing it. Not doing it. And if you're Dominic Cruz, I mean, don't you already have to feel a little bit passed over when you even come into the UFC, when the UFC is like, oh, Jose Aldo? Nah, he just gets to be the UFC 145-pound champion. Dominic Cruz, we're going to have to have you fight Scott Jorgensen real fast to make sure that you're, you get to be the UFC bantamweight champion. Well, I don't know. The same situation that they did at Lightweight with the WEC, was, except for that one, was, all right, hey, you're going to get the title shot. Uh, immediately, even though we know it didn't work out that way. Yeah, but uh, they didn't even make Jose Aldo fight anybody. They just gave him the belt, had him put a suit on, <laughs> come stand out in the middle of the cage. I think that was more of a, a timing issue than anything else. But, you know, if this situation, the, the whole interim thing, I th- it really sucks for all sides. Because if you're Dominic Cruz and you're sitting there and you're watching these guys fight for basically a made-up belt while you're at home with yours gathering dust, uh, waiting for your knee to heal. And then it also sucks for Hen Brow, say, you know, say he wins this, defends that title, everybody's going to still say, yeah, but it's not the real one. You're not the real champ. Dominic Cruz is still the real champ. you got to be Dominic Cruz before you can call yourself the real champ. Right. And it's like, it's not up to him. You know, I'm, I'm sure he would like to have that fight with Dominic Cruz, that like to have that opportunity to cement himself as the real champ. But yeah, it, you, you really can't win there either way. And, you know, Dana White said this week in London, uh, it was the topic was broached. Hey, at what point do you just strip Dominic Cruz of the title? Say, Hey, we realize this sucks for you, man, but you've been out too long. We can't wait forever. 
uh, we're just going to take this. We're going to make the interim title a real one, and then when you come back, you know, you can if you're if you come back healthy, you can have an opportunity to fight for it eventually. And Dana White said, "No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't strip a guy of the title for being injured." But then when you create an interim title and just keep pumping that up while the guy can't fight, aren't you in a way kind of stripping him of the title? Aren't yeah. you, or aren't you doing something that's equally as kind of a dick move to him? In a way, yeah. But, I mean, from a promotional standpoint, it doesn't really make any sense for the UFC to strip a guy if he's going to come back. If, he, if there's a return date anywhere in sight for him because dude comes back and he's the rightful champ. You don't have to say too much to sell that fight with the guy who's carrying the fake belt around. But it might even be more unfair to him. Say he ends up being out a total of two years. You know, say a little over two years goes by between, you know, his last fight with Uriah Faber and when he returns. You're going to have that guy be out two years with uh, bad knee issues and have him come back after that long a layoff and be like, okay, now fight the monster Hennon Burrell. Wait, the monster? The monster. Well, the one thing we know about the UFC is that it is always fair to the people who work there, the subcontractors, the independent contractors who, who put their lives on the line to go out there and make the money. Always fair. To I feel them. like you're not being totally sincere here. Anyway, uh, well, let's talk about the fight because I legitimately think it's it's a great fight because both Hen and Barrow. Well, Hennon Barrow is a monster. He's a monster. And Michael McDonald is barely old enough to, to drink. I think he just Which turned he would 22, never do, right, last he's month. intensely Christian, yeah. Right. Uh, but I he's a dude who... commented that uh, Michael McDonald seems like, I don't know if it's just because of his name, but you felt like he was the most Canadian fighter who is not Canadian. Yeah, big surprise to me when I looked up Michael McDonald <laughs> this week to discover that he was not, in fact, Canadian. Because, his, I mean, his name is Michael McDonald, the most Canadian name of this all side time. of Mike Myers. Yeah. Sounds like a guy who would write in a, a question to the co-main event podcast for Ben Folks to answer it. <laughs> uh, so, but no, yeah, he's from California, as it turns out. And he's a guy that I like because he sort of uh, uh, is the antithesis of this idea that, that the small guys can't stop nobody. Because I think 10 of his wins out of maybe like 16 fights are, are KOs or TKOs. So he definitely has the power in his hands to... Uh, to stop people and i think that this is going to be a fight that is both interesting and exciting because i think these guys are both going to look to throw them bungalows yeah and throw some 135 pound bungalows and that i think uh it kind of does them a favor now that the focus on hey these guys can't finish anybody has moved off of the bantam weights right. and onto the flyweights and soon to move on to the straw weights <laughs> as soon as the 115 pound guys yeah, are and then it's then they can worry about it now Pressure's off the bantamweights a little bit, but yeah, this one this does seem like probably not going to go five rounds. Somebody's probably going to get finished, and I agree with you. It is just a rad fight on paper. Yeah. You look at that and think, yeah, watch that on the middle in the middle of a Saturday afternoon on Fuel TV from from England. I'm all about it. I think maybe the British fans are going to continue to feel like why they always getting fucked <laughs> that the UFC really loved them when they were the the first kind of international expansion zone. It uh, used to come there with big shows all the time, and now eh, we'll see you once a year. We'll throw we'll throw Che Mills, and we'll throw some guy from from Liverpool on the prelims, and uh, we'll call it good. We'll throw some 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 Swedes on there or something, because hey, you're all Europeans, and uh, then we'll give you a main event that's maybe not exactly the the big time one you were hoping for, and then see you next year. Yeah, but I mean, don't you think that the English fans are are treading dangerously close to territory where they're going to get called pussies who shouldn't watch the show anyway. Like that's going to be the next UFC president flies off the handle, tells English fans not to watch the show. No, I don't know. I think they're, they're, they're it's perfectly understandable for them to feel a little bit left out at this point, especially since, you know, their market was so obviously forgotten and exchanged for other markets that the UFC now seems to consider far more lucrative and far more interesting. But, I mean, if, if the object is to just have a couple few pints and go down to the fights this weekend, I think, on they're, that riddle. I think, <laughs> I think they're going to come away happy with all of that. Because, like we said, McDonald and uh, Barrow are both going to come in looking to throw those bungalows. And I think it's sort of an intriguing matchup of styles, just that, you know, they're both guys who at times can look like they get a little bit out of control with their strikes. But at the same time, uh, Barrow is just a dude who's going to come out there and try to take your spine and skull home with him like a predator. 
would. Whereas McDonald is the kind of guy who is doing all things through Christ. A doing all things through Christ, but B listed at at five foot eight, and I don't know if that is accurate because I'm not <laughs> Are you sure. saying that there might be some high school football program. Well, uh, yeah, action I, going I on? mean, anyone who has covered any sports at all knows that. Okay, yeah, you're five eight in the media guide. That means you're five six when we meet in person. <laughs> and I don't know honestly if that is the case in fighting because the dimensions of fighters come into play so much more often. Uh, than than in 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 uh, I mean they're they're bandied about in front of us in a more concrete way than in some other sports. I mean they actually have to get on a scale for us to figure out how much they weigh at least before they drink a lot of Pedialyte and uh, get the IV plugged in. Um, get their jeans and their work boots back on. <laughs> right. But McDonald is a dude who who I think is effective at using his length to to snap a jab in people's face and and then counter them when they open themselves up. Uh, so I think on the feet he could potentially pose some sort of threat to Hannon Barrow. And then I think if it, if it goes to the ground, you're probably looking at Barrow maybe having the advantage because he's pretty nasty down there. I was surprised what a favorite Barrow is on the betting lot. And I think he's like, like a three to one, something close to like a three to one favorite. Yeah. If you can get that kind of, if you can get that kind of money on, on Michael McDonald and you've got some, a couple few quid that uh, you don't (laughs) mind never seeing again, uh, I would say definitely place that bet. And you, you lost all your quid on the, the Wanderers, though, didn't you? <laughs> I don't know what that means, but yes. Betting on the Wanderers against Manchester United or something. Oh, somebody's been transcribing interviews lately. Um, <laughs> why did You talked to Michael McDonald this week, yeah? Did you talk to the monster as well? I did. Uh, was it terrifying to speak with the monster? It was probably one of the worst phone interviews I've ever done. Oh, really? It was awful. Wow. Why? Um, well, because he doesn't speak the language? Because or? we had to go through a translator, and it seems like the UFC... When they're doing these, setting up these phone interviews, it's just kind of up to the dude to have a translator. Um, oh, weird. You know who has the best translator in the game, who I believe is also his manager slash lawyer? Junior Dos Santos. Uh, I, I forget her name right now, uh, but she's the best. And you know she's good because when he is giving an answer to you in Portuguese, and then there's a pause because she's writing it down. She's not just paraphrasing oh. it for you at the end. She's writing down what he says as he's saying it uh, and then translating it so that you know you get it all. Uh, and She's not doing the Ed Soares where no, you just kind of maybe not, ballpark it. And yeah. Maybe if there's some things that maybe the fighter shouldn't have said, yeah. maybe we leave that part out. Yeah, or you know, just kind of paraphrasing it like, yeah, he says he's excited. So he's excited thinks it's going to be a good fight. <laughs> uh, and that was kind of the thing. I don't know who, if Hen and Browse, they looked around the gym and were like, who here has the best grasp on English? Um, but it was, you know, I didn't stick with the interview very long because I could definitely tell there was, there was some stuff being lost. Uh, he either was not hearing the question I asked quite as I asked it, or I wasn't hearing his answer quite as he answered it. Something was not going on. It was, I remember when uh, Strike Force. I think the first show, uh, first show in San Diego, right after Zufa bought them, uh, and they kind of had the same thing going on with translators for the Japanese fighters. And Shinyaoki just had like some dude from his gym uh, who seemed he even seemed embarrassed that he was serving <laughs> as a translator and was and his English was not that great, definitely better than my Japanese. So I guess I shouldn't talk, but still, right. it's like we're sitting here and he's just like, yeah, he says uh, what is word? What is word? Excited? Yes, he's excited. And you're like, well, great. This has been a, a good use of a media day. It's always a little bit annoying when the translator goes third person on the yeah. on the answers because then, like, as the media member, how do you quote that? Yeah, like, it just doesn't make sense. No. I, I feel like maybe there should be a school. There's no school for for translators, well, maybe right? There's the no USC way where should just could... hire its own full time translators that it uses for. I mean, I guess. You can't be everywhere at once, and they, it could kind of get costly, but I don't see why not. I mean, you have enough Brazilian fighters. Why don't you just get one or two good translators that do all these phone interview stuff and, and you know, post-fight stuff so you don't have to rely on the guy's manager all the time? Although, I do love uh, Dennis Seaver's coach uh, serving as his translator, especially because they just make for a great sight gag. Uh, <laughs> with Dennis Seaver, who's like five and a half feet tall and built like a, a fire hydrant wearing a, a sponsor T-shirt, and then this huge bear of a man who is very jovial uh, serving as his translator. It's awesome. See, that's a good that's a good behind the scenes anecdote right there. Civilians at home don't understand 
how many different ways the MMA phone interview can go wrong. Yeah, so There's many just ways. so many ways it can just crap out on you. You don't know if the guy is going to call you. You don't know if he's going to be there when you call. You don't know if he's going to be fucking like riding his motorbike down the highway. He's going to be in a wind tunnel. He's not going to be able to hear you. You're not going to be able to hear him. Yeah. You know, his dog is barking in the background. You're trying to record it on this $10 thing you bought from Radio Shack, where when you go there and ask him for it, the people at Radio Shack don't even know that they have it. (laughs) Of course, they don't know what they have at Radio Shack. Yeah. And you introduce a translator and you any other extra variable, a translator or anything like that into the into the mix. Uh, just fucking forget it. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that that's probably going to do it for our discussion in round number two. Uh, we will be right back momentarily with round number three. Well, Ben, more details have come to light now about the impending Bellator reality program. Bite Master? Bite Master. And uh, this week, I guess, we, we, we became aware of the fact that, that uh, Randy Couture, Greg Jackson, Frank Shamrock, Joe Warren, am I leaving anybody out? I think that's all of them. Are going to be involved as mentors and, and coaches. Joe Warren's going to be a hilariously awesome mentor. Dude, I think we are all excited about the inclusion of Joe Warren. That's the thing I'm most excited for. Fight Master. As listeners of the podcast know, uh, it's my belief that Joe Warren is the most fun corner man to watch work a corner, and well, yet probably the least helpful. Yeah, that's so he just shouts be at you the entire time. The best thing about having Joe Warren on this show is that I guess I don't know exactly how they're going to arrange it, but at least one out of every four fights, we're going to get to hear a guy standing at cage side going, "Punch him in the face! Put your hands on! Just him. get a hold of him! <laughs> Punch him in the face!" and just screaming it. You know, which reminds me, by the way, greatest UFC cornerman performance of all time. Got to go back deep cuts in the stacks. Evan Tanner against Daryl Golar, I think at like UFC 18, was before they had rounds, and Daryl Golar was a guy who either had or later went on to compete in American Gladiators. Nice. And throughout the entire fight with with Evan Tanner, it was like his like it was like they had given his corner man his own mic and he was just <laughs> yelling into it again and again, "Punch him in the face, Daryl! Punch him in the face, Daryl!" In case he was confused Darryl. about where to punch him. <laughs> Daryl. Punch him in the face, Daryl. <laughs> My favorite corner man performance of all time. Cuz what did he think Daryl Golar was trying to do, man? <laughs> Punch him in the clavicle. And actually, full disclosure, Daryl Golar is totally kicking the shit out of Evan Tanner in that fight for about the first six minutes. And then Daryl Golar runs out of gas. So who knows? Maybe you have that fight today in the land of rounds and his cornerman would get, got, get to come in the cage with them in between rounds and tell him, Punch him in the face, yeah. Daryl. Yeah. Who knows what might have happened? The whole course of sounds like a uh the topic for a uh, speculative fiction novel yeah. <laughs> I could be working on. You know what I wonder about the fight master thing? Uh so my understanding of the concept is that you got these four guys, Greg Jackson, Randy Couture, Frank Shamrock and Joe Warren and they each have their own camp, right? Mm-hmm. Uh and the fighters are split up in their camps. But we're told that the fighters get to choose which camp they want to be in. That can't be totally true, right? Because right, you can't have a show if everybody's like, oh, I want to try to get Jackson's. And, like, right. and then just cut no, to man, like an I'm sure tons gym. of dudes are going to be like, oh, I definitely want to sign up to train with Frank Shamrock yeah. over either Greg Jackson or Randy Couture. I mean, I imagine a bunch of hilarious like cuts from like a really full gym with Greg Jackson, and then we cut to Frank Shamrock uh, in an empty gym looking at his watch. And like going going up to the front desk to ask if there are any calls, <laughs> you know, picking up the phone, yeah. see if there's a dial tone. <laughs> yeah, sending himself test emails just to make sure it's working. Right. You know, that would be awesome. But it can't be true. They they, they must tell these guys. There's got to be a situation where somebody's like, ah, I want to I want to train it with Randy Couture, and they're like, Yeah, we were thinking you would be with Joe Warren. Yeah, we're, book, we, the Randy Couture up. stuff is full. We're, we're booked. Yeah, yeah. is it gonna? First come, first serve, or 
Well, here's the thing, too. It seems like we all, as you alluded to at the top of the show, kind of assume that this is going to be a bad idea for the dudes who are getting involved in it as far as their relationship with the UFC goes. Right, and that's the kind of thing that sort of makes me mad, to be honest with you, because Greg Jackson doesn't work for the UFC. No, Greg Jackson is an independent businessman who runs his own shop. Greg Jackson's Martial Arts, perhaps you've heard of it. It's in Albuquerque. (laughs) And... He needs to try to make money for himself and promote his gym any way he possibly can, regardless of whether or not the UFC is involved. A An organization that in the past has not been particularly supportive or complimentary of Greg Jackson's abilities or style as a coach. And so I think that the, the, the uh, assumption that Greg Jackson should either not be involved in this show or should have should should fear some kind of retribution from the UFC points out a lot of the things that are wrong about the industry that we currently all find ourselves embroiled in absolutely yeah when the when everybody's default is just like well how will the UFC manage to fuck greg jackson as uh, uh, you know punishment for being involved in this as if the only reason he's succeeding now is cuz he's coming so highly recommended from Dana White as if that's why fighters are going to see him. Like, already, you know, you know Dana White's attitude on Greg Jackson. It's also like the same thing with Randy Couture, right? Where suddenly Randy Couture is a scumbag because he's going to work for the competition. Uh, and Dana White's rant about how he told Ryan Couture, hey, we still want to have you if you want to be here. Um, but your dad won't be able to corner you. And I believe Dana White said, won't be able to buy a ticket to, this, to the event that you fight on. Um, how do you, as the promoter, how do you keep a guy from, how do you get to choose the corner assignments? Especially if you have it in, like, Nevada, somewhere where the athletic commission is responsible for that kind of stuff. I mean, if you have it in Brazil where you can do whatever the fuck you want, fine. But if you have a fight in Nevada, how does, uh, how does Dana White get to tell you, yeah, I'm mad at this dude, so he can't corner you? That seems like not at all what a promoter should be able to do. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, I guess you can tell, you can just go to your own fighter who's your employee. Right, like, I assume hey, that's what it is. I assume that Dana White isn't, heaven forbid that Dana White would exert any control over, I don't know, say the Nevada State Athletic Commission, <laughs> uh, aside from, you know, hiring the former head of the Nevada State Athletic Commission, if that tells you anything about which job is preferable. Uh, <laughs> I assume, yeah, he just told Ryan Couture, don't. Don't even try it. <laughs> and why? I mean, the, like, what do you care who corners the guy? Yeah. What do you, I, I mean, what, can I it be know. like, all right, you're mad at him. You don't like the way this, this business relationship between you went down. When he's there with cornering his son, you guys aren't going to talk to each other. You're not going to sit down for a steak dinner uh, at, at Planet Hollywood the night before. Fine. But shit, what's wrong with him being there? What's he going to do just by being there? Come on, man. Yeah, no, it's it's weird, and, and it's, the thing that is inter- most interesting to me about this Randy Couture thing, especially, is that we actually get to hear the other side of the argument in this situation, because Randy Couture is a guy, you know, who's so high profile and has such a long history and is such a respected guy in the sport that, you know, media guys call him up and ask him, and, and he gets to talk about how he tried really hard to or let the UFC set him up with some kind of a, a larger role in the company, and then they turn around and hire Matt Hughes for that job, which I believe Randy Couture described as a big fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it kind of seems like it was. And it just makes you wonder, like, how often does the UFC put somebody on blast, which happens frequently, pretty mm-hmm. frequently, where we just don't ever get to hear the other side. of it. At least in this one, the other guy has a, a, an outlet with which to, to tell his side of the story. Well, you know, when Fightmaster... Finally, Which, premieres. Let's talk about this for a second. Fightmaster, yeah. worst possible name. First I'm, thing I, you thought of, right? Yeah. It's like, did did they go to somebody in Bellator and say, "Quick, we got to announce this thing. We got we got five minutes to come up with a name for the TV show. What do you got?" Uh, uh, fight. fight uh, the ultimate fight, no. Uh, uh, fight. Uh, Fightmaster. I don't know. Fightmaster. Fight Fightmaster. Fight General. No. Fight Samurai. Fightmaster. <laughs> Fuck it. Fightmaster. Like they had the, the, the printing company that was going to embroider the logos on the polo shirts was on the phone and they had to give him an answer right then. <laughs> well, I wonder if we're going to, if 
hardcore fight master is going to suffer from the general reality show fatigue that a lot of mixed martial arts fans might be feeling after yeah. uh what are we on season 63 of the ultimate fighter at this yeah. point aside from fight master's totally crappy name uh, yeah, how do you make it different enough? See, that's the thing. It's like we all sit around now and bitch about how the Ultimate Fighter is stale and has run its course. Now we're going to have a completely different show that at least from the description, and hey, give Bellator credit, it sounds like they have some people involved in this thing that at least know what they're doing because they got the guy from The Amazing Race, which is a show that I've never seen before. Yeah, but I don't know what It that involves is. foot racing or something. Uh <laughs> Who's fastest? It's sounds, a competition. It Finally, riveting. a televised really competition to determine who's fastest. <laughs> Dude, you're Am I really right? Really doing a great job of selling it right now. They got that guy involved, so he knows a little something about reality TV. But yeah, you're right. the 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 main concern here, I think, is that uh, how's this going to be different from the Ultimate? How is this not going to look like a slightly crappier version of the Ultimate Fighter? Which, as I say time and time again, is the main problem with people who are trying to compete with the UFC is that their product looks like a slightly crappier version of what the UFC puts out, which I think is probably the biggest worry about Fightmaster. Well, maybe one thing Fightmaster has going for it is that you're not going to be stuck in that same Ultimate Fighter gym and that same Ultimate Fighter house for the entirety of the thing. I mean, you get, you get to bounce around between the different camps. Right. That seems like it could be interesting and sure. refreshing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm willing to give it a look. I'm willing to watch one, one or two episodes of Fightmaster. And depending on how much exposure Joe Warren gets, I might be willing to watch more. You, I hope they're listening. Yeah. Because the audience has spoken, and what yeah. the audience is saying is more Joe <laughs> Basically, we want Fightmaster to be a Joe Warren vehicle. That's what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, springboard to other... I want Spike TV to sign a contract with Joe Warren that is much like the one that signed with Randy Couture, where apparently he's going to pop up on other shows. I want Joe Warren to, to walk into Bar Rescue and help whoever it is on that show do whatever it yeah, is. Which, by the way, watching Bellator events on Spike, uh, it's starting to seem like maybe Fightmaster is a little too close to the blank business rescue model, <laughs> which Spike has, has adopted for everything. It's like, you know, laundromat rescue, uh, you know? If if they don't have strip club rescue in the works, then it's a huge missed opportunity yeah. uh, for Spike and, TV. Hey, now that you mention it, I feel like Fight Rescue might be a better like concept for a Bellator show. Joe Warren, the tour, Frank Shamrock, Greg Jackson, show up at Baroni's house, <laughs> and we do a fight rescue. What do you think? Or they show up to just shitty gyms. Uh, like, you know, they go to... Uh, the Bear Clan, Hop Keto Gym <laughs> uh, in Oregon. Oh, and Joe Warren masters. shows up and just yells at them about how they all need to work on their wrestling. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it beats, you know, uh, Barista Rescue or whatever Spike TV is, is filling the time with. All right, well, let's do Just Saying Stuff, then we'll get out of here. You go first. I'm just saying this week, the UFC announced a couple new heavyweight matchups. Uh, you got... Uh, Overeem and Junior Dos Santos going to get it on, and Bigfoot Silva is going to get that title shot after all in a pretty quick rematch against Cain Velasquez. You know, I'm just saying good for the UFC for giving the man his due. You keep putting Bigfoot Silva in these fights he's supposed to lose, and he wins them, uh, messes up your plans, and finally you say, hey, all right, fuck it. Let's put him back in the title fight. I'm just saying, though, what we know about the MMA gods you're pretty much setting yourself up for Bigfoot Silva to be the heavyweight champion of the UFC for the next 10 years. I Ooh. hope you're ready for that. Just saying. Just saying. You're just saying. Uh, I'm just saying four observations about last week's Bellator show, which I hope everybody watched. Observation number one, it was pretty awesome when uh, Michael Falco showed up for the weigh-in and big-timed Alexander Slomenko by pretending he was on the phone during their weigh-in. It's a pretty sweet move. Observation number two, it was even more awesome when Schlemenko hit Falco in the, in the stomach with a body shot that made Falco make this face like, yeah, no, 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 we're done. We're That's done enough. here. That's right enough. before Schlemenko knocked him the fuck out. Observation number three, if you didn't see Schlemenko's dance and post-fight interview with Jimmy Smith after the fight was over, you need to check it out on the internet because it might be the greatest moment in the history of our sport. The dance that seemed like an involuntary spasm. That's the one. <laughs> That's the one, my friend. And observation number four, 
I'm starting to feel like Jimmy Smith, Joe Rogan, and Dana White are all becoming the same members of the same weird race. <laughs> it's either that or like someone has instituted a shaved heads and black dress shirts only policy on guys who are allowed in the cage. I don't, I don't know. I'm just saying. If you don't have a black dress shirt, shaved head, and at least a bulging vein in your head or two, don't even bother getting in the cage. Don't even bother showing up. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. How we're going to get this thing on the internet, I have no idea. And that doesn't even begin to address our problems for how to record the show again on Monday, (laughs) which is in like four days. So we're going to figure it out somehow. (laughs) But uh, for this week, that's our show. We're done. We're through. We're out.